This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Today marks two years since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. In those two years, almost half a billion cases have been diagnosed and more than six million people have died. And although the coronavirus has brought much tragedy and loss, it's also been met with one of the greatest scientific efforts in modern history, the remarkably fast development of highly effective vaccines. Now, as restrictions ease around the globe... I wanted to look back at what exactly we've learnt from this pandemic. And our guest this morning is Professor Catherine Bennett, Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University. Professor, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Two years ago, on this day, two years ago, did you think that we'd still be talking about the coronavirus? Not on a daily basis. You know, I would have thought um, we would still have coronavirus, though we weren't clear then whether A, we would have a vaccine and B, what that vaccine might offer. So elimination was a possibility, but a remote one. The the magnitude of waves and the the curveballs that have come with this in terms of the challenges in managing the different variants has kept this much more front of news page and front of conversation than I would have hoped. I think at this stage, we would have thought we were were perhaps still in wave phase, but but slightly less dramatic than unfortunately we're still seeing in some countries. So two years on, what do we know now that we didn't know two years ago? Because we'd been through SARS and various other diseases which may have become pandemics but did not. This one, of course, has affected the entire world. What do we know now that we didn't know two years ago? Well, we've learned a lot about the virus itself, what the risk that the original ancestral strains posed to us and how it was transmitted, and particularly that risk of severe disease. We, we progressively developed a clearer picture on that. What we're still learning is, but we now know more about, is the long-term effects of having this infection. And in fact, there's something to this that we, we, we take more broadly into infectious diseases. We know that with respiratory infections, severe disease in particular, you can have these chronic long-term side effects and they perhaps weren't as well understood as they might be now from what we're learning from COVID. So we're learning a lot about the disease process, a lot in detail about transmission processes from different parts of the world. And with that, while we have to start again each time we get a new variant, we are, you know, adapting and a lot of the population now also knows about things like reproductive numbers. So modelling has been uh, an integral part of looking at the big picture here and trying to project what how different variants will behave in different populations. So that's that's enormous. We obviously know a lot about the genome genomic side of it itself. We're learning a lot about the etiology of the disease, everything from infection and the different binding sites and how mutations impact that, as well as disease progression. We've come so far, not just in the vaccines, which are almost miraculous. We weren't sure we could have a vaccine back at the start of this pandemic, but to have a vaccine that not only worked against severe illness, which was the primary aim, but does actually help reduce symptomatic infection and in many cases onward transmission until you come to the more immune escape variant of Omicron. But we know that the vaccines will be able to do that if they're tailored to the new variants or we develop these universal vaccines. So vaccine development's been fantastic. But hand in hand with that is the development of treatments and secondary prevention, if you like. So you can have post-exposure antivirals or you can 
build someone an artificial immune response by giving them monoclonal antibodies soon after the infection to help them fight it off if there's someone who is immunocompromised. So there's so many things that we now have to help understand and reduce transmission, but also then how that translates to that backup we need because we cannot protect everybody from infection. Okay, but what we don't know is why it affects some people worse than others, why some people don't get it at all despite being exposed to it. They don't seem to develop it. We don't know why some people have long COVID. Some people have a better reaction to the vaccination than others. Why don't we know that? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? We've had millions of cases, billions of cases. So we now are in a better position. You know, we've got more data than we've ever had for an infectious disease in a short period of time. But they are still searching for the answers. But we are finding some of those answers. A group up at the Kirby Institute have been doing really interesting work with long COVID and looking at the different biomarkers in the cells of people that have long COVID versus matched people that don't and getting a bit of an indicator about what might be important in that process. It might identify people who are at risk. It might also identify the disease process for long COVID and help identify treatments. Just this week, we had something come out again, um, looking at a big genomic study in the UK where they've looked at people who developed severe illness. And again, it's, it's identifying particular genes that seem to be associated with that risk. And again, it might not only identify people who might be more at risk of severe illness and help us perhaps you know, personalise public health responses based on more sophisticated measures of, of individual risk, but it also, again, helps us understand the disease process if we understand those genes and what their role is. That can lead to advances in thinking around potential therapies. So it's, it's complex work. It's been going on since day one, trying to understand everything about the virus, how it moves, the epidemiology, through to the disease process itself once infected. So there's multiple steps along the way, many people looking at this, but it's complex data. And some of it, whether that's looking at response to vaccines or long COVID, you actually do need months to follow people in order to, to unpack this. So it's a massive effort. We've put more research dollars, research capacity into COVID research than anything else in the history of the world um, in this compressed period of time. But we are almost daily seeing absolutely fascinating things coming out of it. What has proven true, though, is we often don't have comparative data. We're looking at data now that often we don't know what it was like before COVID because we haven't looked at the same things in the same way to understand how COVID is changing things. We're also in a, in a world that because COVID, particularly Omicron, is so ubiquitous that it's, it's harder to find comparison areas where you don't have the virus to try and understand, you know, other forms of chronic sequelae following a, an infection in a non-COVID environment. We just, we ran out of non-COVID environments pretty quickly, but even our COVID zero countries now, of course, are, you know, accumulating natural immunity. So the population's evolved along with the virus. We now have a much broader immunity that gives us protection, not just from the viruses circulating, but hopefully from further emerging ones. So the whole story keeps changing. You know, the, the risk of a new variant now is different because, you know, as I said, Omicron, new variant back in 2020, equivalent to the ones there, but hyper-infectious. Now, you know, Omicron, people describe it as a mild virus, but that's really because 
we've changed and that's important and thankfully it's not quite as virulent as, as Delta that mm. came before. So, so it's that mapping everything that's changing, so many moving parts and trying to isolate the things that give us these more detailed handles on what's going on. The other area we don't know a lot about, interestingly, there have been some very good studies overseas in particular areas, but we haven't done that in Australia as much, is really drill down to see where transmission was happening. We've got the big picture. We know the uh, sites like aged care that were impacted, particularly in the second wave when we first started to really look at community transmission in Australia. But we've got really rich data because we did extraordinary contact tracing. Mm. And again, it just takes time to get the data into a format that can be analysed and have the people, the resources to do that work. But that will be really valuable. That's going to be valuable for next time because by knowing where and how a virus like this is transmitted, we might be able to say, well, we don't have mask mandates in shops. We need them on public transport or in uh, nursing homes or hospitals, but we don't need them in other areas. Or that's, we don't need to have the, exactly right. the same length of quarantine or something like that. That's absolutely right, Rod. And that's what I've actually been pushing for this all the way through. In public health, you know, our adage is you don't put any intervention in place without building evaluation into it. And I know, and I've heard, you know, our chief health officer here in Victoria say this as well, but oh, we, we put it in as a, as a package so you can't unpack it. But the reality is you can. You can still look to see where transmission is happening with that knowing what the package of interventions is. Plus, we've had at different times slightly different packages and masks were added in, you know, on top of other measures um, at different times in different states as well. So there are changes to the transmission. And it's not just about looking at reproductive numbers or the overall case number. I think the big thing about this out, uh, this pandemic is that we've put a lot of emphasis on modelling and it's been a really helpful tool. But what we usually have is between case counts and the modelling, there's a whole lot of analytic work that goes on that looks at case control studies. And they've done this overseas, but we've not heard about it in Australia. But case control studies that compare people for their risk and try to understand what puts one person at greater risk than another. We need to look in detail at how the virus transmission changes from area to area. We've got completely different demographics. This is mm. a very unequal virus. We know infection rates and death rates vary according to where you live. And that has a lot to do with your risk of exposure, which varies depending on the work you do or the size of household you live in and how many you know, multi-generations are in a household, all of those things really change the dynamics. And you know, when you're in crisis mode, you can't do it. And unfortunately, we've had wave after wave. But equally, what we learned in the second wave in Victoria and again in New South Wales with the Western Suburbs outbreak, we identified the areas where you could get rapid spread, You know what we would call in infectious diseases your core groups, where you've got high exposure, high transmission risk, and that then can drive an outbreak in, in the broader community. So it was only when Delta came and we had, again, the highest infection rates coming out of these hotspot areas of high exposure and transmission risk. The partnerships were then activated to get that vaccine rollout, which helped bring those outbreaks under control. Amazing effort. 10% of adult population vaccinated in a week. You know, it was just mm. extraordinary what was done. But if that had been done two months earlier as part of the vaccine rollout, as sure. part of prevention, yeah. 
it might have actually kept that wave uh, smaller and had less people impacted before the vaccine could be rolled out. So we have to do more in the prevention space. We're not thinking yet in prevention. We're still kind of caught somewhere in response mode and, and trying to adapt to a new surveillance and monitoring system as we transition now but we have a lot of work to do. It's also a pandemic of perceptions, isn't it? Because even today, say, in New South Wales, we're still getting eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 cases a day. Now, two years ago, one year ago, that would have been calamitous. Governments would be forced yeah. to resign. But now, well, people don't even care that the numbers are that high, it seems. There's a couple of things going on, isn't there? One is it's just kind of we're numb to it and, and you do adapt. But the other is what that means. And... You know, there's been a lot of talk as we've come through this anniversary of the um, second anniversary now of the first death from COVID. And a lot of people saying, you know, we only had, we had less cases than we'd expect with flu in that year anyway, and we had no flu deaths. So why did we do it? And the answer is, of course, well, that's what we had because we did it. If we hadn't done it, it would have been much worse than that. And in fact, we still had 900 deaths, even though we went to such levels to stop COVID. You know, imagine what that would have been like. But if you say, you know, flu went from 900 deaths to five mm. and COVID was, was 900 deaths, even though that had under the same restrictions, but that was specifically targeted for coronavirus. Exactly. We weren't targeting flu. We weren't testing people and isolating them. So that was a good outcome. So the decision at the time to go into keep the international border closed and go into the levels of response that we did, different as they were across different settings based on exposure risk and, and the way they chose to follow up on outbreaks, equally successful. But that all was put in place, not because we had 900 deaths in 2020, but because of the risk that came if the infection rate took off when we weren't vaccinated. Right. And I think people fail to see that. It's not to say, well, this, this case, these cases were unacceptable, then now they're acceptable. What's changed? It's actually what we call the residual risk because, as I said earlier, we've changed. You know, we now have this immunity that in the first instance protects most, not all, but um, most at least to some degree from the risk of very severe illness and death. That then means people can still get optimum care if they become unwell. The residual risk associated with case numbers is lower. So it's not that we're saying that's acceptable or that the deaths we have now are acceptable. It's the best we can do to manage what is a terrible human pathogen, but in a way that is sustainable sure. and that has the benefit, thankfully, of the immunity both acquired from vaccine, but also now infection that we have across our communities. But still some work to do. We still, okay. still need more people with boosters. Professor Catherine Bennett, Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University, is our guest. It was the first pandemic of a post-truth world. How detrimental do you think the reaction by anti-vaxxers and by those who protest mask mandates and other mandates, how detrimental do you think that was to the fight against coronavirus? It was absolutely a real weakness in, in humankind in terms of responding to this. And the fact that the information being circulated was was no longer curated by people in people who knew what they were doing and people who were trusted by society. It undermined trust, undermined the information itself. It allowed people to think that they didn't have to go to an expert. That started to undermine the concept of an expert. But then anyone who could talk numbers and was seemed to be quite educated as some sort of data analyst or, or even not 
could actually interpret this you know, with an alternative message and they should be given equal weight. It left a lot of people confused and if, if nothing else, it delayed decisions to get vaccinations. It made those decisions more anxious for people. I worked with people one-on-one, -on -one, people that would contact me because they had unanswered questions because of all this information out there who would later, based on balancing all the information, decide to get vaccinated and only then realised how stressed they had been in the process. So people might look at the data, might interpret it in their own way, but to then share that and, and to become advocates for this interpretation that kind of justifies their own decision, or you know, there are people with bigger motives than that, that that we hear about as well. It's the very least disarms people. It means they don't have the right evidence to base their decision on. And so for me, I'm someone who is all for supporting informed choice and that that personal right to inform consent. And it undermined that by by flooding the world with incorrect information by so-called experts that yeah. is devastating. That costs lives. Yeah. At the end of the day, it undermined massive programs, including in Australia, and that costs lives. And I think that's what people need to sit back and consider as we figure out ways going ahead where we avoid that happening again. Where do you think we'll be in two years' time? In two years' time, I think we will be beyond the pandemic. The pandemic might might be called later this year, maybe next year, but I think beyond that, we will have this sitting in our our suite, unfortunately, of, of human pathogens that we do have to take seriously, that we have surveillance for, standard monitoring systems. We might still have local flare-ups. We'll probably still be hearing about long COVID and understanding that better. I think finally we won't be hearing about long-term safety effects from vaccines when people realise there's very little room for there to be a problem with vaccines. You know, the way they work, the way they are built, uh, the way our bodies uh, process a vaccine, there really isn't this sense of surprises that are going to come in 10 years' time. But viruses are different and we, we, we know that viruses to see infection process itself and, and we have other viruses that sit dormant in the system. So we need to really fully understand this virus if we are going to live with it. So I think we'll still be hearing about it, but in the same way as flu, we'll be getting the heads up from the health department to say, we think it's going to be a nasty season. It's starting early. Bring your, your vaccines forward. We'll probably be getting flu and coronavirus vaccines at the same time um, if we still need regular vaccines. If we go universal vaccine, we might maybe need a booster if our immunity wanes, but it might not be as, as formal as, a, as an annual flu vaccine. So we don't yet quite know what that long-term process is of keeping the balance right between natural exposure, protection that comes with vaccination without the same risk of serious disease, but it's also how it then sits with all our other diseases in terms of managing that risk, particularly for people. Sure who are you know, immunocompromised or elderly. Exactly. And I think finally, just to say, we, we're already starting to build our world differently. It's a lot we learned about our world being designed more for a pathogen than humans when it comes to a pandemic. You know, the way we mix, uh, the way we live together, the way we encroach on animal habitats, all of those things, you know, we've, we've talked about them for many years. It's all part of climate change as well as we watch with Japanese encephalitis in Australia. So we do have to take that seriously and, and rethink how we you know, build our aged care. There's great stories emerging mm. from there about village style accommodation and other things that will actually be built so they can be dialed up 
for a quarantine you need if if that happens, whether it's a diarrheal illness, virus going through an aged care facility or flu or coronavirus, we need to be able to operate those centres differently to protect people without isolating them in the in the cruel way that we had to, in the, in the kind of crude way mm. we had to manage infection risk up to you know yeah. this point of the pandemic. Professor Bennett, thank you very much for your time this morning and thanks for your great work over the last couple of years. Thanks, Rod. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio. Radio.